You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Mm, thank you, Matt. I say this all the time, but I, it bears saying again, if you come to Bethel downtown and if you listen and pay attention, you will almost always hear the sermon twice. Just as an evidence of the Spirit's leading and moving and nurturing and guiding and guarding and loving and leading, usually the songs that Matt will select are a, a pre cursor to what we're going to walk through in our text and so I'm thankful uh, for that song because it's right in the center of what we're going to be studying together this morning and I do want to say good morning and as Matt said happy new year happy new decade Uh, my name is Eric Barton and I get the pastor down here at the downtown campus and I can't think of a better place to be here on the fifth day of January of this new year this new decade than to be together as God's people to worship and so if you're visiting with us this morning we want to say a special word of welcome we're delighted that you're here we say this all the time as well we don't think it's an accident that you're here we believe that God and his sovereignty and his grace has divinely directed your steps to be here to hear something from him about him this morning and how that applies to you so that you and I will walk out of this room changed. And so if you are visiting this morning, we would love to know that you were here and you can let us know that you were here by simply texting your information to a phone number we're going to put on screen here. This uh, phone number, you can text us uh, 903-437-4437. Just let us know that you're here and we will connect you with all of the things that are going on in the life of our church in general and our campus in particular and let you know how you can get more engaged and sort of jump in the flow of what's going on in this local church. We believe that the local church is God's plan for your life. So if you are visiting, we want to know that you are here. We want to connect with you. We want to know you. We want you to be known by us so that you can continue to grow into being a part of this family of believers. Now then, for our membership, I need to give a very quick financial update because this is a part of worship. All through the month of December, as we began our fiscal year on December 1st, we mentioned that for the previous fiscal year, we were operating at about a $50,000 deficit. And we sent out an all call. Hey, church family, we want to continue to fund and resource the ministries to which we believe God has called us. And so we asked, and you at all five of our campuses have responded with generosity. And so I'm delighted and overwhelmed to report with complete transparency and clarity that this past December was the largest December we've ever had as a church in terms of giving ever. And so what that has done is it has given us an opportunity now to look at all the the hopes and dreams we had for ministry for this coming calendar year and our staffs our elders everyone is coming together to say hey how can we continue to go ahead and and engage with these ministries and so we just want to say praise God we're so thankful for that and that doesn't mean we're done of course we want to continue to give you the opportunity and challenge you to respond generously to live generous lives and so you can give by simply texting the same number that you can uh, give us your contact information. You can give online at our website, or of course, you can always give uh, dropping an off- and 
the uh, offering box between the exit doors on your way out. Again, that's for our membership. If you're visiting this morning, we're not asking you to feel uncomfortable like you have to do that. No, our membership, when they join, our members say, yes, we will commit to support the church financially. Well, having said all that, there's a lot of other things going on in the life of our church. I do encourage you to read the e-news emails that come out. I encourage you to read the bulletin. Case in point, last Sunday, we just had one 1030 service, and many of you got to sit around the foundry at nine o'clock. That was publicized, but not enough, apparently, so we want you to read those things and be caught up. And now here's what I'd like to do. I want us to pray together, and then I want us to continue to worship together by walking through God's Word. So please join me in prayer. Father, thank you this morning that you are the God that sees. You're the God that hears. You're the God that knows. You're the God that cares. You are God, and there is none other. And we know, God, that because you are good and because we need it, your desire is to hear from you and that you want to communicate to us. And so would you remove every distraction? Would you ready our hearts and minds to hear from you? God, we do give you praise for how you have moved by your spirit among your people financially, that generosity has been demonstrated by these, your people. I give you thanks. To you alone be the glory. We thank you for this. And God, we pray and we ask, we beg for wisdom that we would steward these resources according to your purpose and plan. And now, God, would you, by your Spirit, teach us, touch us in a way that only you can, because you are worth our attention and our affection. And we pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to ask the question, how do dead things come to life? How do dead things then live? We started our sermon series on the book of Romans a decade ago, if you can believe that. Well, no, it just feels that way. It was actually just August of last year. We've been in the book of Romans since August of last year or last decade. We've made it all the way through chapter 7. For those of you who are new here, we've gone all the way through Romans chapter 7. And we've covered three primary plank document, uh, doctrines in the platform of Paul's gospel of God. We've covered the doctrine of condemnation, the the wretchedness of the human being in our default nature, the, the, the foundation that is our flesh. We've talked about justification, where God finds us guilty but declares us righteous. He chooses to see us different. And then we began talking about the doctrine of sanctification in chapters six and seven, and we're gonna continue that this morning. We're gonna be in chapter Eight of Romans. It is perhaps most preachers, theologians, scholars will say that Romans chapter 8 is the most important and glorious and gorgeous chapter in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. It's been said that one day, if and when we see the tree of life in the garden, that that tree of life will be Romans 8. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who famously preached through the book of Romans, it took him 13 years. He said that coming through chapter 7, we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, but when we get to chapter 8, it is the tip of Mount Everest. It's that big of a deal. And so I will tell you completely candidly and transparently, I feel quite unworthy to preach Romans chapter 8. And all week long, I have been in a mild case of soul shingles, freaking out about how does one adequately attempt to preach Romans chapter 8. And then the passage itself spoke to me. 
And the passage said, it is God who does the work. You just stand there and preach, and God's going to do what God's going to do. And so I will tell you, I have gone from extreme anxiety and fear of worrying about how our people going to think about this sermon to, hey, this is God's word. It will not return void. He's going to do what he's going to do. And so I pray for you that he will do precisely that. Now, literally, we could spend 10 weeks on the passage that we're going to cover today. We could spend 20 weeks on the passage that we're coming to this morning. And I would love nothing more than to do precisely that. Most of you who know me know that I would love to geek out and Greek out on every single syllable in this text but then none of us would have any clue what it's actually about. And so I don't want to do that. I want to actually sort of come at a high level and look at this glorious, glorious passage. As I said, in Romans thus far, we've talked about condemnation, justification, and now in sanctification. So again, the question, how do dead things come to life? And how do those dead things actually live in the here and now? To answer that, we need to step back a little bit. In fact, not just a little bit, but a lot of bit. Martin Luther famously said, and rightly, that Scripture interprets Scripture. That the best interpreter of Scripture is, in fact, Scripture. So to really understand the book of Romans, and specifically chapter 8, we're going to look back. So as we resume now, after our Advent season, as we resume our study in the book of Romans, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. It's my opinion that you really can't fully gawk and gasp at the glory of Romans 8 unless you understand Ezekiel 37 is in the mind of Paul. I've said this before, I believe in Acts chapter 9 when Paul is on the road to Damascus, I think he's contemplating, I think he's meditating on Ezekiel chapter 1 the throne chariot meditation where he's having this vision of God and suddenly God knocks him off his horse. I think Paul was intimately familiar with the book of Ezekiel. He references it several times. And so I think Ezekiel 37 is in the mind of Paul when he writes chapter 8. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm just going to read these first 14 verses. It's a familiar passage to many of you, I'm sure. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones. Dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. That's good theology. The prophet Ezekiel is prophesying to the people of Israel because they are in exile. It is the Babylonian captivity. The nation is broken. The nation is dead. You must understand that about Ezekiel 37. Israel is dead. It's been taken off in three separate waves of exile. Israel is dead. Israel's not sick. Israel's not fussy and cranky or sleepy. Israel is dead. They are out of the land. They have been broken and scattered and shattered. And so the prophet Ezekiel testifies on behalf of God. Verse 2, And God led me around among these bones, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. They've been there a while. They've been picked clean by the elements, by animals, what 
Ezekiel is experiencing. We don't know if Ezekiel's physically, literally there, or if he's just there in the Spirit. We don't know. Paul has this experience himself. He's in the Spirit in the third heaven. Whether I was there in physical body or not, I do not know, Paul says. So in the same way, we don't exactly know what's happening here with Ezekiel, but it doesn't apparently matter. Verse 3, And God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, wisely oh lord god you know i don't it doesn't look like it because they're just bleached bones there's nothing alive here whatsoever it is death you alone know then he said to me prophesy over these bones and say to them O dry bones hear the word of the lord thus says the lord god to these bones behold i will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and i will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that i am the lord so i prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. Some of you know that sound. It's called waking up in the morning. <laughs> bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. That's super significant. There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath. That word ruach in Hebrew could mean breath, it could mean air, it could mean spirit. It's intentionally ambiguous. I take it as spirit. And breathe on these slain because they're dead. They're dead, dead. Not mostly dead all day, they are dead. Breathe on these slain. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. Because I want to reiterate, they were dead, you see. They lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Well, verses 1 through 10 are the vision. Verses 11 to 14 are the explanation of the vision. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, now, you have to understand what Israel is saying here. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. It's very significant language. We, Israel, have been cut off. We're dead. We cease to exist. We're dead. We're separate. Therefore, verse 12, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Now would you please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. As you're turning to the book of Romans, chapter 8, I want to remind you that what... Ezekiel has just 
described and experienced is our big idea for the morning, which is also the big idea of Romans chapter 8. Our big idea for the morning goes like this. The Spirit alone overcomes death. The Spirit alone overcomes death. The Spirit alone overcomes death. That's what we're going to see here in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. As you continue to turn there, I want to remind you also our overarching theme of the book of Romans. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's been saying this whole entire time. Now I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 through 17. I'm just going to walk right through this. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the spirit, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This too is God's word. This passage is the proclamation of the gospel of God. Our working definition for the gospel, we say this all the time, I want to say it again. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Now, as I read through Ezekiel 37, and then, then I read through Romans 8, I hope you hear and heard Ezekiel 37 in the reading of Romans 8. At the end of that 14-verse passage in Ezekiel 37, God says, I will do this. This is the Apostle Paul saying, he's done it. The thing that he promised he would do, y'all Y'all, this, he's done it, it's happened. We're living in the light of the conclusion and the completion of Ezekiel 37. He's done it. It's not how we expected. Not what we thought, but he has done it already. 
So now, very briefly, I just want to walk back through Romans 8, 1 to 17, sort of draw your attention to a few things here. Again, we could spend 10 weeks on this. It might feel like 10 weeks by the time we're done, but we're going to walk through this very quickly. I would contend that if the gospel of God is the the message of Paul in the book of Romans, that chapter 8 is the central chapter of his message, and that Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is the central passage of the entire Bible to encourage the believer. There is, I don't think, any other passage that is so pertinent to understand the force of what the gospel means. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, you might be familiar with that passage, and it might sound like, "Mm, okay, great, I'm saved. But you and I will never understand the glory of the gospel unless we understand the depth of what we deserve in condemnation. That is what we deserve. Now remember, this comes at the end of, this is going to be a brilliant insight. You're going to want to write this down. This comes immediately after chapter 7. I know. Studied all week for this, and this is what I found out, is that chapter 8 comes immediately after chapter 7, in which Paul concludes by saying, wretched man that I am. And now I don't know if you've ever actually come to that recognition and realization, but I have. Said out loud, standing in my bedroom, just, my gosh, why am I the kind of person that? Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? I'm cut off, I'm separate, I'm dead to God spiritually in my own devices. It's the same idea and notion and emotion that the bones have in the valley of dry bones. We are cut off, we're dead, we don't exist. We are separate from the life that is our God. Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation. I am wretched. The only thing I deserve in this life is condemnation. I am like the person of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Every inclination of my heart and mind is only evil all the time, period. Left to its own devices. All I deserve is condemnation. But Paul says, but now, because of what God has done in Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. God's not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not even disinterested in you. He is fully for you. More on that at the end of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. You need not ever fear seeing Jesus when he returns. I hear Christians say this all the time. Oh man, when Jesus comes back, I'm going to have to hang my head in shame. Oh no, no, no. He already did. Stripped, naked, shamed, humiliated, beaten, scourged, hanged on a cross. You will never have to experience any of that shame. It's finished, do you see? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. True Israel, ultimate Israel, is not a nation. It's a person. We've already learned in chapter 2 that if you are a Christian, you are a true Jew because you are in true Israel, the person of Jesus himself. Israel cried out in Ezekiel 37, we are cut off, but true Israel was cut off. And the Spirit alone overcomes 
death. It did with true Israel. And now Paul's going to say everything else after chapter 8, verse 1 is going to explain and amplify chapter 8, verse 1. Kind of have to just know that. It's a massive, marvelous passage, but everything from 2 and following is simply piling on to what he's just said in chapter 8, verse 1. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life. Paul will never use that expression again anyplace else. It's a synonym for the gospel. The law of the spirit of life. That means the gospel, the the thing that God is bringing to bear on your life. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. Again, in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's whole point of what it means to be a Christian is you are found in Christ Jesus. It's not that you adhere to a certain set of doctrines, that you were raised in a certain denomination or tradition. No, 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 no. That you are in Christ Jesus. As far as God's vantage and view, you are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. From the moment we come into existence, we are in Adam. And the law, the inviolable, unbreakable law is we are hostile to God. We want that which is opposed to God. But those who are in Christ Jesus have been set free from that power of sin. Verse 3, for the law has done, or sorry, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's not that the law was bad, it's that the law was weakened by the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the flesh? The Greek word there, sarx. He doesn't just mean our physical, material, corporeal bodies. We tried to describe this somewhat in chapter 3, again in chapter 6. What does Paul mean? And sort of our working definition has been that the flesh is living under the reign of an old realm. But now Paul's going to nuance this a little bit further. The flesh essentially means the mindset, the attitude, the perspective that I am actually sovereign and that God is not. That I truly am number one. Allow me to illustrate Have you ever spent any time with a prepubescent adolescent? They live in a universe with a population of one. Every thought, every deed, every idea, every action, every word orbits around their personal centrality. And I look at them with whom I got the opportunity to spend a week with on an extended family vacation, and I go, wow, oh gosh, that's that's me as well. Or how about this, to explain and to illustrate the power of the flesh. Have you ever gotten in a really big blowout fight with your spouse, with a coworker, with a friend, with a neighbor, uh, somebody? You got in a really huge blowout fight, and you guys really went at it, and you finally finished the fight, or you just got tired of fighting, and you went to separate corners, or maybe you got in your car and you drove away, and you replayed the whole fight in your head. And you thought about all the things that you could have and should have said. And all the times that you've replayed those fights in your head, have you ever lost one? Me neither. I've lost, I think, every fight I've ever gotten into with my wife. All of them. But when I replay it, I get her every time. Because it's my world and she's living in it. That's the flesh. Where I am sovereign of my universe, practically, functionally, in thought, in word, and ultimately in deed. That's the power of the flesh that Paul is talking about. So he says in verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. It's my me-centrism, my messiah complex that obliterates what the law was intended to do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, please hear me for a moment. God didn't just send Jesus. Yes, he sent Jesus. Of course he did. But we must never forget that Jesus was not just a nice guy, a nice, perfect person. He is God himself. What Paul is saying is that God sent his second self, as it were, in the likeness of all my jacked upness, the flesh, my self-sovereignty, my self-centeredness. He sent his son in that same physical form to become sin and curse and shame and pain and death. God did that, sent his own second self. In the likeness of sin of flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God the Father looked at the Son and said, I condemn you. He became the penalty. He became the curse. He became the death. God sent his own self to do that. Verse 5, uh, uh, sorry, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God did a thing so that all these millions of people could have right standing, could be set right, could have righteousness, the currency of his kingdom. God did that to his second self, his own son, so that we would experience the blessing and the benefit of sonship. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Again, this is about mindset. This is about worldview. This is about attitude. How do you see the world? What is your lenses that you look through? Are you the center of the universe and everybody else is sort of just in the way? Or is God really and truly, by the Spirit, the center of the cosmos? Those who live according to the flesh have a mindset or set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We walk, we move, we think, we act, we behave as though the Spirit indwells us. We live like it's true. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. It has never worked out for any of the 14 and a half billion people that have ever lived on the planet. Setting your mind on yourself has never, ever prospered nor produced fruit, ever. But surely you'll be different. No, me neither. But I keep doing it by default because I'm convinced that the sin of our age is not so much pride as it is apathy. It's just me. I'll be looking at my phone, thank you very much. No, 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 we set our minds on the Spirit. It takes diligent action. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. Oh, and peace. And peace. Not just life, that's great, but it's also peace. That's how we have peace, is setting our mind, having the mindset of the Spirit. Verse seven, for the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I understand that sounds exclusive, but that's only because it is. Take it up with God. This is what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2. The spiritual person discerns all things, but the natural person cannot understand God, cannot please God, can have no standing before God. And then verse 9, the dead center of our passage. The description of what a Christian is. I get asked all the time, are those people Christians? Are those people Christians? Well, what about Presbyterians? What about Lutherans? What about Methodists? What about Baptists? What about... No, they, Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. This is the answer. You, however, are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, that's the mark of a Christian. Does the Spirit of God eternally indwell you? Not what you know, not how you were raised, not where you're from, not how you vote, not your 401k. Does the eternal Spirit of God, the third member of the Godhead Trinity, does he permanently indwell you? Yes or no? I'll tell you, this is a very personal question for me. I have very close family members and friends who will say they are believers, and perhaps they are, but I have never once ever seen any indication of the indwelling Spirit in their lives whatsoever. It's not for me to make that determination finally and fully. But I pray, God, that others can see the Spirit of God working His will in and through me to others. That's the determination of a Christian. Are you indwelled by the Spirit of God? Verse 9, You, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. I, I know these are a lot of churchy words, but what Paul is saying here is that the spirit of God is God and he is righteousness. He himself is the character, the morality of God himself and he indwells you. Therefore, from God's vantage point, you are righteous as well. Even though you're not. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christian, I cannot encourage you any more firmly, emphatically, strongly than Romans 8, 11. Jesus Christ was the very first human person ever that was eternally indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. All the saints of the Old Testament temporarily had the Spirit come upon them and then depart. Jesus Christ is the first human being ever to be permanently indwelled by God's Spirit. And because of that, when he died, necessarily and by definition, the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Materially, physically, and so what Paul's saying in Romans 8.11 is if you are a Christian indwelled by the Spirit, then it is a guarantee that God has to do the same thing with you. You never have to fear death. You never have to fear losing a loved one. I got rocked this week. My mom told me that my mom's new husband went and put a Christmas wreath on my dad's grave this season. That rocked my face off. But I was reminded, he was indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. And so I know more than I know my own name that I will see him again. Because the Spirit has no choice. Just as he indwelled Jesus and raised Jesus, he will do the same for you. Now that's called perspective. That's called having a mindset of the Spirit. I have no fear of anything in this world. If I die, pfft. while I live, I'm with Jesus. When I die, I'm with him. Hmm. Well, I live, he's with me. When I die, I'm with him, I should say. There's no fear. It is a guarantee the Spirit has to raise me because he already did the same thing for Jesus. That's what the book of Colossians is talking about when he says Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. He did it with Jesus. He has to do it with you and me as well if we are indwelled by God's Spirit. We're going to pick up speed in verses 12 to 17. Paul's now just going to sort of rattle off the amenities, if you will. 
some of you are in real estate and you talk about, well, it's got this amenity, it's got a pool, it's got a hot tub, it's got a gym membership. Well, here are the amenities of being in the Spirit. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So how do dead things come to life? The Spirit alone overcomes death. And how do we actually live now that we are alive? Not according to the flesh. We don't just say a prayer and then sneak in the back door of heaven smelling of smoke. That's not biblical. No, 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 no. We live according to the Spirit. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, we begin to alter our mindset, our worldview, our thinking. Now, please hear me. When I say thinking, I don't merely mean intellectual ponderances and reasonings. I involve all of thinking and feeling and, and all of our mind and our heart. Those things, we take captive every thought and we set them on noble things from above. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Not merely children of God. No, no, no. Firstborn males of the household of God. But wait, there's more. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Oh, God save me, but now he has to just sort of put up with me. And now I got to do a bunch of stuff to keep him happy. Oh, no, 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 no. You have received the spirit of adoption. He has grafted you in as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He's not this distant despot. He's our Father. Abba, we love him. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But wait, there's more. Verse 17. And if children, and we are, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and they would have been completely familiar with the Roman concept of patronage, where somebody uh, more wealthy, more powerful, essentially adopts you and brings you into their household. The ultimate case of patronage was when Julius Caesar adopts Octavian, and he becomes Caesar Augustus. That's the language that Paul is using. You, like Octavian, get adopted by God, and you become a co-reigner with Jesus Christ. The gospel's a big deal. You don't just escape hell. Please don't ever think of the gospel thus. So, very quickly, let me give you some implications. As we think about the Spirit alone overcoming death, and damn bones, damn bones, damn dry bones rising again. Three very quick implications. Number one, it is God by His Spirit that does the work. It's God by His Spirit that does all the work. It means it's not you and it's not me. The fascinating thing about Romans 8, 1 to 17 is there are no imperatives. There's not a single command. There's not a single instruction. There's not even a should. There's not even a faint suggestion. It's just Paul telling you that you are a valley of dry bones and the Spirit of God did a thing and raised you. It's God who does all the work. In other words, revival is nothing short of a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. Yes, of course, we have a responsibility to respond. Of course, I'm not abrogating that. But it is God working in us, Paul says in Philippians, to do that. It's not about a list of things that you now have to do. Again, I was away on a family vacation this past week and my family played a whole lot of Skipbo, this goofy little card game. And it, it amused me because right on the box of Skipbo it says, fun is organized. It's like, oh man, perhaps. 
But for many of you, you think the Christian life is about making a list and then by God's grace making it longer. Please hear me. Please understand. A list is a wonderful tool, but it's a terrible master. It is not about what you have to do or what you have to accomplish. And that, by the way, informs how we are to think and pray for other people, how we present the gospel to them. So often people say, well, you've got it, you've got it, you've got it, you've got it. No, you don't. Do you have any concept of how wretched and wrecked you are? That means the Spirit of God is working in that person. And you present the gospel that there can be now no condemnation in their lives. So it is, by, it is God by His Spirit who does all the work. Second point, according to this passage, Ezekiel 37 and Romans 8. Conversion is life transforming. It is life transforming. It is not a quick decision based on merely a conversation or a situation. Of course there is a, a decision involved. We have to repent and be wrecked by how profoundly wretched we are. But that again comes from God revealing it to us. Conversion, apart from life transformation, is a contradiction in terms. People say, oh, I'm a, I was converted, but nothing ever changed in me, ever. That's an oxymoron. That cannot be. The mindset has never actually changed. Conversion is the spirit taking something dead and making it alive. Damn bones don't raise themselves. They don't do it. They can't do it. And once they are indwelled by the spirit, they can't shake the spirit and return to be a pile of bones again. That's impossible. Conversion occurs by the proclamation of the word empowered by the spirit. It was true in the valley of dry bones and I pray that it is true of you and me. Third point, very practically, Christianity is spirit walking. No, I don't mean some mystical weirdness. Christianity, according to Paul, is spirit walking in Galatians 5, walking by the spirit. Our morality is because of whose we are and who has us, not because of what we are supposed to do. I hear all Christians all the time trying really hard and they say, it's all about obedience. It's all about obedience. No, 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 no. That's a fruit. That's not the root. The root is whose we are and who has us. Spirit walking. Christians have the Spirit, so we should walk by the Spirit. And our thoughts and our feelings must come from that, uh, from that reality and not from our own strength. Let me illustrate it this way. All of us, in some way, have this innate desire to fly. All of us want to fly in some way. Now, you can walk outside and flap your arms like crazy to try to fly, but you will be exhausted because you weren't designed for that. It is not your nature to be able to fly. Or you're free to fly. You're free to fly. Go for it. You can't. It's not your nature. Or you can trust in a greater power and you can board that 747 and fly across the ocean. But you have to trust that that plane will get you there. It's designed for the purpose. It's spirit walking. If you try to overcome your flesh and your wretchedness in your own strength, I want you to have that image of, oh my gosh, I'm just flapping my arms. I'm just, and I'm, you might actually even be able to jump higher than somebody else. It's not flying. You can stay in the air longer than somebody else, still not flying. You're just burning calories. Well, good for you. It has no eternal value whatsoever. The Spirit alone overcomes death. So what are we actually supposed to do? I can hear some of you going, uh -uh, okay, but now what? Now what do I do? We set our minds on things above. How do we do that? We consume God's word personally so that it impacts us 
personally. We gather together as God's people and we worship. This, this is that. We adjust our minds. Coming to church actually matters. It impacts and it influences our mindset, our worldview, our attitude, our thinking, and our feeling. We say that all the time. We want to continue to say that. And listen, we live in this strange overlap age. We are in a very real sense also still in the valley of dry bones. We will still, should Jesus tarry, we will still experience death, but not for long. But this is the most important message I could conceive of because people are dead spiritually. People are dying and people will die. And it breaks God's heart. But because of the finished work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit, because of the goodness of God the Father, you see the entire triune Godhead comes to bear in our salvation. The Spirit alone overcomes death. And so as the church has said for 2,000 years now, even so, come Lord Jesus. And until he does, we will celebrate our death-proof king. In a moment, we're going to take communion together, so don't rush off. I'm going to ask those who are going to serve communion, if you'll please come forward. And as we prepare, if you will join me in prayer. If you're going to serve, please come forward. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. And in this valley of dry bones, in a sense, you have moved by your spirit, and the rattling of bones coming together has occurred in many but Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who may not yet be yours, who are still bleached on the valley floor. Would you breathe into their lives? Would you pronounce them alive and forgiven? Would you give us clarity, recognition of our estate apart from you, and the glory of our adoption as sons into your household? And would you move, Father, among your people as we enjoy and share communion together? We pray all this in the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.